We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by well-known Taipei-based political commentator, Jerome Keating. Hey, Gavin. And on the telephone by ICRT's Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith. And good evening, Gavin. And tonight we'll be discussing the latest on the dispute surrounding NTU President-elect Guan Zhongmin, a new presidential office secretary-general, ongoing efforts to secure a World Health Assembly invite, and news that Taiwan is now officially an aged society. But we'll begin with all the latest news about the local elections, which of course are coming up in November. And it might seem a way away, but well, we can't really ignore it at the moment here in Taipei. Anyway, talking of Taipei, the DPP this Thursday, confirmed that former Premier Su Jung Chung will be the party's candidate in the new Taipei City mayor election. Now Su held talks with President Tsai Ing-wen Thursday morning and he accepted the nomination after a one-hour meeting. And DPP spokesman Jiang Yun-pung has been quoted as saying that Su had said that he was willing to let a younger candidate represent the party in new Taipei. But Tsai and the party's election campaign committee managed to convince him that he was the best candidate. And the DPP spokesman went on to say that the party believes that Su is the best candidate for New Taipei, as the city's mayoral race will be one of the most important battlegrounds in November's local elections. Of course, Su Jung-chung served as Taipei County Commissioner from 1997 through through 2004. Now, former New Taipei Deputy Mayor Ho Yo-i won the KMT's primary for the New Taipei pay mayoral ballot and in the latest public support poll which was released by the Taiwan Next Gen Foundation on Thursday of this week it pointed out that Su Jung Chung is currently enjoying a 42.6% support rating while Ho Yo E has a 41.7% support rating so a very close race there Jerome in New Taipei we can expect in November it is close Gavin and I think that's probably why Su was a good choice it and Definitely you want to start bringing in new blood, but into a close race like this, uh, probably the best to go with the old war horse. Well, old is the word. I mean, on television this morning, he's 70 years old, of course, and on television this morning, one of the news channels, which will remain nameless, called him the old man. Well, uh, come on, I'm I'm older than him, Gavin. <laughs> You're not going to get me to accuse him of being old. But uh, do you but, think this could affect his ratings, polling, his ratings, his the young people looking at him thinking he's too old? Trump is 70, you know. The, uh, and the, uh, the young people, though, will also have to look at, you know, the record of how. So the, uh, or hope, the, uh, so, and... I don't know. He's been a good man. He's, he really knows how to get around. Obviously, 42.6% for Sue. That's quite good for an old man, I would have thought. Ah, definitely but, good for him. I mean, how many obviously, young people aren't going to necessarily remember him when he was Taipei County Commissioner? Well, that's true. And I think it'll depend on how he campaigns. And he's a good press-of-flesh man, really. I've seen him out there. I've met him many times. And... Uh, he, he's got a certain charisma, a certain way of getting out in the crowds, good smile. Obviously, the KMT obviously are looking to win New Taipei again. But do you think maybe the voters in New Taipei could be ready to switch to the DPP after so many years of the KMT? 
I definitely think so. The last race was very close, surprisingly very close. Uh, Eric Chu just really pulled it out when he was expect to walk away with it. So I think there is a certain dissatisfaction, and the people there remember Sue. He did them well. All right, Donovan, obviously in Taichung, are you watching the new Taipei race at all? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, uh, basically, I mean, uh, looking at sort of the overall picture, I think the KMT is it really only has two places that they can win as things stand currently. Uh, as Lin Feifan said, uh, as of Tainan, if you take Tainan and Kaohsiung, basically the DPV could run a watermelon and they would win. Um, Taoyuan, uh, Zheng there is looking surprisingly strong. I mean, uh, he's polling extremely well. He seems to be extremely popular. He's a rising star. So it looks like the DPP, uh, bar a major catastrophe, will hold Taoyuan. Uh, Taipei City right now, Koen's, uh, is way ahead in the polls of anybody on either the DPP or the KMT side. Um, so right now, the the Taipei City is looking pretty strong for Coenza. The So really that leaves New Taipei City, which the KMT, the KMT currently holds, and Taichung City, where in both cases, polling shows that the race are extremely tight. Now, I found it a little bit surprising that uh, they went with Su Zhengtang on, on New Taipei City. Uh, on the one hand, of course, yeah, from 97 to 2004, he was... Uh, and by by most accounts I've heard, he did a fantastic job there as uh, what was then called Taipei County, uh, as the commissioner there. Um, but again, he is seventy, and the KMT has been ruling um, has been ruling uh, New Taipei for quite some time. So there may be an appetite for change, and he's not exactly what you'd imagine as the change candidate. Uh, he's kind of a throwback. I've noticed on a lot of the uh, pan-green media, there's a lot of blowback against uh, the KMT central you know, authorities at the top uh, that a lot of people think he, they should have gone with Yoshi Quinn, who just, he went from being way behind in the polls last time to just narrowly losing last time uh, in, in, that, uh, in that race. What about Sue's age, as I pointed out to Jerome earlier? I mean, do you think Sue, as a 70-year-old man, is going to appeal to the younger voters? Well, probably not. Um, and again, that's one of the reasons why I think he's an odd choice. I mean, you know, as Jerome pointed out, he is a charismatic guy. He's definitely a proven administrator. He's got a long past. But he's not exactly a change candidate, you know, when the KMT's been ruling for so long. But now the KMT, relatively speaking, has a, re- a fresh candidate now that Eric Chu's term limited out. So their candidate, in some ways, looks fresher than the DPP candidate. So that's kind of an odd, uh, feels a little bit like an odd choice. Ryan, talking of freshness, is fresh support rating polls from your neck of the woods where I see that the DPP incumbent Mayor Ling Jia Long and the KMT's mayoral candidate Lu Shou Yen, well they've seen their support ratings take a bit of a hit in the past couple of weeks due to some rather unforeseen circumstances. Well we don't actually know from polling. The last, uh, the, uh, pretty much the uh, most recent polling that we've seen prior to them getting the hits had them basically neck and neck and had Lin ahead by about one percentage point. Now Right after the last poll came out, uh, came the whole Harry Hoffman thing, which, is, which was essentially a a German company came. The mayor announced on stage to you know a big fanfare that there was going to be a they signed an MOU to do a massive 110 billion NT dollar offshore mining operation. 
Now, the press did a little bit of digging and found out that the Harry Hoffman Consulting Company was a one-man show. Now, this was pitched by the press as a uh, scam or, or fraud. My suspicion is that's not exactly what happened. I, I, my suspicion is because no money changed hands, uh, that this was a, a, a kind of a middleman hustler broker kind of guy that he was trying to uh, he would get uh, the offshore mining companies, bring them in, and then take a massive cut off the back end. Um, but the thing is, that it's, it, it spoke to the perception of, of, of Lin Jialong not necessarily being a strong or diligent administrator. In other words, they didn't really do their due diligence on this company before announcing with giant fanfare on stage and to the press with bright lights. You know, they had this massive deal. So they really didn't do that due diligence. They didn't look into it. They didn't consult the EPA to see if offshore mining is even legal in Taiwan. Then this was followed up immediately right after that, before the KMT could get too excited about this. Um, now, speaking of the Harry Hoffman thing, uh, is that, well, anyway, the... Um, then uh, the press did an expose on uh, Lu Xiuyan, who's the KMT candidate. It turns out that in the last few elections uh, uh, for legislature, over half of her campaign funds all went through family-controlled companies. These are firms that, you know, are in her own family. Now, she shot back that this, you know, she's in a political family and that this was all completely declared, all completely above board. You know, she didn't do anything illegal or anything like that. But that spoke to the widespread perception of the KMT being corrupt and uh, out for their own gain. And so after the last poll came out, both Lin and uh, Liu got hit with these, these scandals that kind of spoke to their widespread perceptions of their weaknesses. So now we haven't seen a poll come out in the meantime. And I don't think that come November, when the election actually happens, that the, that the public's going to remember the details of either one of these cases, but that they feed into a perception which may hurt them both in the polls. Okay, well, I definitely feel that's another battleground there. And But this whole 9-in-1 election is a clear turning point because... We we do need a lot of new blood, and this will probably be the last stand of the old guard on a lot of ways. I haven't seen anything that good from the KMT side, any new blood at all, and they should have learned from last time. Uh, and for the DPP, I think this is where a lot of them will do their last bow out. I think that's absolutely correct. Um, and that's an, an, an excellent analysis. Is that, and the thing, but the thing is that the, right now the DPP's got a lot of new blood coming up out of Taoyuan. Uh, obviously, Lai Qingde coming out of uh, Tainan. They've got they've got some rising stars, whereas the KMT doesn't. And so they, the KMT right now has to win in New Taipei and Taichung. If they were to win both of them, that gives them a chance to have Lu Xiuyan or Ho in New Taipei. To you know, then they've got some rising stars. Then they have some actual administrators, and if they do a good job, then they have a chance at having a new generation, and they can bring up people in the ranks from there. If they lose both Taichung and New Taipei, uh, then literally all the KMTs left with to bring up any new blood is through the legislature, and that's generally not a major path to executive power. Generally, the presidents don't come from that route. 
uh, and they, they're in, deeply in the minority, and they'll be left with uh, Nanto or Miaoli commissioners. That's not, those are not national stage positions. Right, on that note, we'll move on. Now, the dispute over the election of Guangzhou Min as the new president of the National Taiwan University took another turn this week when Education Minister Pan Wenzhong waded in and said that if any evidence is found that the allegations that he worked illegally in China are true, his appointment will not be approved. Of course, Guan was elected the university's president in January, but he has since faced allegations of conflict of interest, plagiarism, as well as working illegally in China. Now, the Education minister this week called on Guan to explain why reports appear to show that he worked in China some 30 separate times. But of course, the education minister himself is being sued by the Action Alliance for University Autonomy. Now, he's being sued by them for malfeasance. And the alliance have said that the delay in approving Guan's appointment has led to difficulties in what is Taiwan's top university conducting academic exchanges. And the alliance also said this week that the lawsuit is seeking to encourage the Ministry of Education to improve Guan's election as soon as possible. And if that wasn't enough, in some sort of twisted piece of irony, which some people have seen it, the education minister's comments and the lawsuit came as Interior Minister Ye Rong faced similar allegations that he too worked illegally in China. And needless to say, the KMT and opposition lawmakers are calling for a full investigation into those charges. And they're also accusing the education ministry and the minister himself of applying double standards. Now, while Ye Rong has denied the allegations openly, Guangzhou Min has yet to say anything about his teaching in China, whether it was paid or voluntary. And, of course, the question is here, did they get paid or not, Jerome? Right. That's where the real problem is. And I think Guang is not being completely honest. There's a f- big fog here. The I stand by the ministry on this that, You've really got to clear this up because Taida, National Taiwan University, that's, you know, supposed to be the flagship of the country. And you can't have some guy who has a very shady past with his honesty with reporting on China. And it's not a double standard. Yeah, as gave a pretty clear explanation of his, but Guan, not so in my book. Um, well... <laughs> This is, this is one of these stories which, if you're coming in from the outside and you hadn't been here for a while, uh, looking at Taiwan politics, you'd go, you know, you just look at this story and go, geez, I just want to be sedated. I mean, this is, you know, who cares? Why Why is the education minister getting involved in this, and why is this such an issue? Um, now, obviously, partly, uh, you know, in Taiwan and, in, uh, in, and also in a lot of East Asian countries, academics have a major outside outsized role in politics so that's a major issue but really this this is actually kind of a trench warfare between and shows really kind of the unhealthy dynamic i think left over from the martial law era within taiwan politics is that traditionally the kmt used uh certain institutions including education uh to use their influence to control and move forward their their agenda. And they had absolute control at one time. And then the DPP, of course, found it as a party literally to do everything they could to destroy that. And this is still, this is so, essentially, this is still an ongoing trench warfare battle between the KMT and the DPP 
over legacy institutions, I think, is, is really what's going on. Now, there's a simple way to check it. If the, if the DPP does something, and I'll give you another example, the irrigation associations. It, again, if you're coming in from the outside, you just kind of go shrug your shoulders and go, who cares? It's irrigation for farmers. Yeah, but the DPP said we're going to uh, nationalize the irrigation associations. There's a simple way to check and see whether or not this is a political action against the KMT by just simply going to, you can either do the research on the history, or you can just go to the KMT website and see what exactly they're freaking out about. And they've been putting up a lot of articles going quite quite intensely against the DPP on the appointment at NTU and the irrigation associations. So it's a legacy trench warfare is really what's going on. What I thought was quite interesting about this case was, of course, the, the charges against Guan and the, char- the charges against Ye of working in China were based on things that were found on the websites of the Chinese universities in question. So these allegations from all sides are being based on something that was written by someone who was told to write it on the website of a university in China. Because obviously they have to give them titles where they work there, Jerome. You can't say, oh, Ye Zhongming, a bloke from Taiwan. You have to say, Ye Zhongming, a lecturer from Taiwan. Or Guan Zhongming, a lecturer from Taiwan. I mean, do you think what the universities in China referred to them as on their websites as called, as, has led to this issue? Well, you do have to gild the lily a little to get some attraction. And uh, I, I would also say that I wouldn't quite trust the websites in China in the battle of court. So I... I, I'm going to stand back a little on this one, and uh, I, I still say, you know, they show me the money, and the yeah basically says I didn't get any money, but Guang seems very foggy on his side. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Of course, he hasn't said, and of course, what what the issue is here? Apparently, if you you can go to China, if you declare it, you tell him you're going to China as a lecturer, as a professor, you go there. If you don't get paid, it's not considered work. Ergo, it's okay. Well, that's part of it. I I think the quid pro quo is that if you get paid, they've got a little leverage on you. And if you don't, you can say, buzz off. Anyway, talking of saying buzz off, only very politely, and she didn't actually say buzz off, Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Zhu this week said farewell to her colleagues at the Kaohsiung City Government. And she was officially announced as the new Presidential Office Secretary General. After a meeting, they had a big meeting, a big chinwag on Wednesday of this week, and Chen Zhu and President Tsai Ing-wen, and that's where it was finalised. And of course, after the meeting, Tsai Ing-wen referred to Chen as our sister, and said that she's a leading figure in Taiwan's democracy movement, and she's also served as a political appointee before being elected mayor of Kaohsiung. Tsai also praised Chen Zhu for her performance as mayor, saying it's not only been an outstanding leader of the city, but also an important national asset. Now, of course, Chen Zhu replaces Joseph Wu, who now is the foreign minister, and Chen Zhu will assume her news post as head of the presidential building on April the 23rd. So a surprise appointment there, Jerome, or one possibly friendship had something to do with that one? Uh, possibly friendship, but I feel a good choice. A good choice. Chen Zhu is finishing off her term in Kaohsiung, uh, so she's free. And she definitely has paid her dues as far as the democracy movement. Uh, you clearly know that she is one that is very pro-Taiwan. So 
I I support the choice. I think Tsai is looking for to strengthen her own, uh, in a way, reputation or her own efforts and her own programs. And Chen is probably be a good cheerleader, a good support person to have on board. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I mean. Uh, and to go back to an earlier point that you made, that also though this is to a certain degree that the, there's a lot of the uh, the old guard, last stand of the old guard. Um, I mean, Chen Zhu is really is one of the most popular people in Taiwan's political history, and so bringing her into yeah, at the national level, uh, you know, when she can't obviously she's term limited out, so she can't be deployed at the local level. With the elections coming up, bringing in somebody so popular and so well loved, and to put her into a coordination role, uh, you know, at the presidential office, uh, it's—I mean, it's—it's it's hard for people to say no to somebody that popular and that that legendary. So I think it's a strong choice to put in that position. Of course, Jerome, there was talk about Chen Zhu's health. I mean, do you think possibly she could be a bit busy doing the presidential office job? Uh, she looked pretty healthy last time I saw her on TV. Uh, she still seems to be pretty robust getting around. Um, I, I'd have confidence in it. The, uh... Well, there we go. We've all got confidence in Chen Zhu running the presidential office the way it should be run. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the long-running standoff over military pension reform could soon be over as the Cabinet is proposing a bill that takes service beyond 20 years as a key factor in pension calculation. Now, the proposal sets out the minimum monthly pension at 38,990 NT. Now, that's in fact higher than the 32,160 NT for retired civil servants and public school teachers. And that payment is set to go into effect on June July the 1st. Now, according to the Veterans Affairs Council, if the bill is passed by lawmakers, it will affect 56,312 military retirees and less than 50% of them will see any pension cut whatsoever. Now, according to the bill, military retirees who receive a lump sum retirement payment will see the 18% preferential interest rate cut to 12% in the first two years after passage of the bill. Now, the preferential interest rate will then be lowered by 2% every two years until it reaches 6% in the seventh year where it will remain. Now, for the retirees who receive a monthly annuity payment, the bill proposes that the 18% interest rate be phased out over 10 years. And Cabinet spokesman Xu Guoyong says that the government hopes that the reform package will be designed specifically to encourage military personnel to delay their retirement. So, Donovan, finally, maybe they've dealt with this problem or maybe not. What do you think? Well, uh, hopefully. Um, I mean, I- I'll be honest. Uh, the, you know, the Thai administration handled, for example, the labor laws, uh, marriage equality, has kind of dropped the ball and, and, and handled them quite badly, I thought. But in the pension case, I think they've handled it quite well. Now, uh, you know, they've sought consensus on a lot of sides. They've taken their time to do, do their homework, uh, because otherwise the whole system is going to collapse. I mean, that was, and everybody agreed that was the case. In this case, I think that um, she has to give uh, preferential treatment to the military, uh, mostly because 
uh, now if this were the Chen administration, you know, back in the day, it would have been for very different reasons. But uh, now I think mostly because it, it, she's, they're having so much trouble recruiting people into the military, and, they, and they're trying to move to the all-volunteer military. So they really kind of need to signal to people who might be considering the military that, you know, you're going to get a really good deal out of this. Right, Jerome, I mean, do you think this will be the end of the protests? Would you be, of course, the protests outside the legislative unit have been running for months now with the retired soldiers? Well, I don't think it'll be the end of the protests because I think some of those old boys have nothing else to do. So they <laughs> they just want to get out on the streets and they, they are losing some of their gold gold coins but uh i agree with donovan that you know the the old system is just too burdensome it you know it's not going to be sustained it comes from the one party state days so it's you know it's too much over promise uh but we do at the same time have to provide something for new recruits give the army something that they can see that it's a, a you know a decent career and a a decent reward and so this is the balance that has to be sought and of course, the government did say that it would offer them more than regular retired civil servants, and it's done that by about 6,000 NT more. And of course, they're scrapping the 18% controversial preferential interest rate, which of course was one of the big issues of the matter. Right. Well, almost, I don't know any place that can guarantee in the world 18% interest. You know, the uh, even in some of your... <laughs> <laughs> Even your best funds, uh, you know, best investments in that. So that's the unsustainable part. The uh, so no, I, I I'm I'm with the changes, and uh, you know, and it seems decent enough to me. All right, Donovan, would you rush out and join the armed forces if you were twenty five years younger? Or 25 years younger, that would be the last thing I'd want to do. I definitely just want to go out and party. But you see more young people looking at this and going, oh, I can get a good pension in the army now. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I, there seems, it, let's put it this way it, it, it can't hurt, um, and, but I don't see young people it, the, that being their primary consideration, but it might be a, a major consideration on whether their parents accept or support or push their children to do so. And talking of the protests, I see that they've taken down their big tent on Zhongshan South Road now. The, I the didn't see that, but it's I... gone. So they, have, they seem to have dispersed now. And, of course, whether they'll be back or not, we don't know, but we shall see. Moving on now, it's nearly time for the 71st World Health Assembly, which takes place next month in Geneva. And Foreign Minister Joseph Wu this week said that the government is continuing efforts to secure an invitation to the event. I don't think they're holding their breath, however. Now, according to Wu, the government is also asking the island's diplomatic allies to send proposals to the head of the World Health Organization, asking for Taiwan to be invited to the assembly as an observer. Now, officials say as of last weekend, they only said many, many of Taiwan's allies had submitted proposals on the island's behalf. However, they did refuse to name the countries or even say how many of them actually did it. Now, regardless of whether Taiwan actually has an official delegation as an observer or not, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong has said that the government will continue to seek an invitation until the start of the assembly. And if that fails, he will still head a delegation to Geneva and he'll host bilateral talks with countries on the sidelines of the event. So yet again, 
Taiwan's forced to attend events on the sidelines and hold meetings there with countries that are friendly to Taiwan. I mean, do, do you think this has any effect at all, Jerome, or it's a complete waste of government money to send officials to Geneva to have meetings in hotel rooms with other countries? No, I, I, it is not a waste of money, and we've got to have people there. The shame more is that they are not recognized and cannot even get an invitation as an observer. And Taiwan is such an important player in the world, and you know, economics, its GDP is in the top 80 to 90 percent. In almost all categories, it's in the 80 to 90 percent. And yet, because of this foolish one China policy that the UN seems to kowtow, I think they probably need to get Trump to tweet Taiwan should get an invitation. That would be questionable. Let's not linger on that one. But, Donovan, do you think these meetings on the sidelines of events like the World Health Assembly help Taiwan? Oh, absolutely. Um, the thing is, is that, I, I, the, you know, and I think the government is actually handling this one very, very well, um, because by simply absolutely refusing to give up it messages to the world that Taiwan cares, it's interested, it wants to be involved. And health, you know, and a lot of people in the health community in particular remember SARS. And Taiwan was, along with Hong Kong, basically ground zero for SARS. Um, so to exclude Taiwan, of course, is foolhardy from an international perspective or from any medical perspective. But from a diplomatic uh, perception, it, you know, even if it's costly, what it does is it shows up how much of a bully China is, and I think that it need Taiwan needs to keep doing everything it can to say, look, we are a responsible country who really wants to participate as any other country, but look at the and, and, and without actually directly saying it. Look at these guys over here. They just they just want to bully us, and and you know, look at what kind of thugs they are. So it shows up China for the kind of bullying behavior that they they that they exhibit. It really reminds people very forcefully of what kind of country China is. Right. This is definitely something we've got to continually put in the world's face. The emperor has no clothes. You've got to face up to that, and you've got to recognize Taiwan. Actually, I think Winnie the Pooh had no pants. I think he did have. A, I think he did have a shirt. But do you think? I mean, do you think China really cares? Well, I, right now, I don't care what China cares. To be honest with you, Gavin, I, I'm more interested in world health. And Taiwan's representation. I agree. Taiwan obviously is trying to get its diplomatic allies to send proposals to the WHO Director General and also obviously pressure the WHO to let Taiwan become an observer at the WHO. I mean, Jerome, do you, do you see this actually being effective? Well, and it, you have to constantly bring up to the world that, hey, you know, here is this important country. You trade with it. It's got a better GDP than you. It's got better health care than you. And you yet won't even let them be an observer. And you should be coming here for advice. 
you shouldn't just let them be an observer. You should put them in in a lead position. Yeah, and I think that Taiwan actually, and very cleverly, uh, with the countries that it has diplomatic relations with, I, I kind of dispute the word allies because I don't think they'd uh, exactly rush to our aid if there was a war, but um, the, that Taiwan has gone out of its way in the, both in the region and with countries it has diplomatic relations with to send medical uh, missions, uh, medical support, um, and it's been very active on that front. So Taiwan actually has a very strong record uh, internationally on supporting uh, world health and uh, people, you know, mostly in the region, but also around the world on, you know, with, with medical missions, with medical support, with uh, both funding and people on the ground. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, Taiwan has a very strong record on that. And so it's something that kind of really should embarrass the WHO and or in that they they won't even let Taiwan in to even just watch as an observer. And of course, Jerome Washington has come out and said every year it comes out and says Taiwan should be allowed to be an observer, but no one pays any heed to Washington in the WHO apparently. Right, I I I guess I would question. You know, they this is what they say. I don't know how much pressure they actually put on things and. I might fault Washington a little bit here, that they may be talking the talk but not walking the walk. Right. And we'll stay with health, but we'll move on a bit. We'll change the topic. We'll talk about health. And Taiwan officially became an aged society this week, as the number of people aged over 65 now accounts for 14% of the island's total population. Now, according to the Ministry of the Interior, figures show that 14.05% of the population was over 65 years in age at the end of March. And that means that one out of every seven people here in Taiwan is considered to be a senior citizen. Now, according to in the Interior Ministry, the percentage of Taiwan's elderly population is roughly the same as South Korea, but lower than that of Japan. But officials are warning that the island's population is ageing faster than that of most other countries. Now, Jerome, seeing as you're the senior gentleman here, what do you have to say about this aged population thing? Well, I think age is not bad. <laughs> the, uh, I'm glad everyone's starting to catch up with me. The I was surprised at the ranking of Japan because when you go to Japan, you still have a good feeling of vibrancy, and they are 28% as I read. You know, that's twice as much as we are as far as their age, and yet they seem to function pretty well as a nation. So, you know, it's not the end of the road, put it that way. Um the other stat I was surprised at was that China is lower than us. And uh, I don't know, you know what's because of the bulk or what, but uh, I'd have to look into that more. Uh, yeah, actually, with China, the, uh, they put, when they put in the one-child the, the one policy, is going to hit them really hard in the next few years. So I think China is going to catch up and probably surpass us relatively soon. Um, <clears throat> But uh, the, the, the interesting thing is, is that I have two major questions on this. The first being, why is 14% the line? Is it somebody went, you know, life just went downhill for me after 14, and, you know, that, that's what it is. Is that the reason they picked 14% as an age society? Or, or is there something more scientific than that? Uh, but the other question is, so what is Taiwan going to do about it? 
uh, Singapore, for example, uh, boosted their, uh, and if you look at the trend line, it, it leveled off a little while back, and that was because Singapore uh, massively increased the amount of immigration to the country. Um, Taiwan keeps talking about that they, they want to increase the birth rate, but of course, economically, it's not viable for a lot of young people, so they're not very interested. So they can either um, they can either um, boost immigration, or they have to move into automation. These are really the only two options outside of magically making uh, uh, people here reproduce. Um, so the, the you know they could bring back the old MTVs, uh, which where a lot of people got pregnant, but uh, I don't think they're going to do that because of copyright laws. So if they bring in, uh, but they they keep talking about they really want to make Taiwan a more uh, attractive destination for foreign professionals, foreign entrepreneurs, and then somehow they don't actually they only make little tiny baby steps. So they've started to make it a little bit easier for uh, foreigners to become uh, dual nationals, for example, which would help. But here's the thing, is that even if that was, that's something that's only open to uh, permanent residents, and there's only thousands of permanent residents in Taiwan, so, and they've only been giving uh, dual nationality, the vast majority of, of them are celibate priests in their 70s who are not exactly going to help the birth rate here or exactly help uh, reproduce and boost the population. So, Jerome, um, do you, so, will you be going out, Jerome, and reproducing to boost the population? Uh, Gavin, I'm, um, I'm past those days, but uh, I, I'd throw the question back to you. Are you a married man, Gavin? The, uh, you know, or Courtney, I mean, we've got a... <laughs> I've done my bit, you know. <laughs> All oh, right, so everybody else's turn now. But seriously, Jerome, what, what do you think Taiwan could do about its aged population? Well, I yeah, I, I have no magic bullet here, and I would rather, you know, and while it would be nice to look for a magic bullet, I would rather look to see what Japan has twice the, you know, 28%, and yet Japan functions very well. I think I would put the some of the effort into saying how do they do it you know how does japan do all this and their aged population is twice as much as ours one interesting thing that taiwan is doing or rather gaoshung is doing they've actually extended the time that crosswalks and red lights and little green men walking give to people to cross the road they've increased it to i believe 50 seconds and apparently it was increased in Kaohsiung. The crosswalk red light system was increased in Kaohsiung because more people were old there. So they need more time to cross the road. Are you sure it's not because people in Kaohsiung are slow? I never said that. You did, Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, obviously. I like to, I, I, I like to make jokes about Kaohsiung. But, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the thing is society's going to have to adapt. I mean, that's actually a, a smart move, I think, on Kaohsiung's part. Um, I mean, the, the, the situation, it, we can actually kind of look for internal models of what the future looks like. I mean, Nanto, for example, sort of in my neck of the woods, um, is the population is falling by about two or 300 uh, a month. And as I reported this week here on ICRT, is that the, it looks like in one to two months, Nanto's population is going to finally drop below half a million. 
Um, and the reason is, uh, obviously, obviously, the aging population, but another big problem is that a lot of the young are move, leaving to take uh, more attractive options outside of Nanto, and in the, in mostly in Taichung. If you look nationally in Taiwan, though, you've got a lot of young people leaving the country and going to China, taking up uh, work opportunities in Australia or other countries. Um, you know, at any given point, there's something like one to two million Taiwanese in China alone. Uh, and there's, you know, hundreds of thousands in other countries. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'd hope that, there, that Taiwan's economy becomes more dynamic and brings people back. But I don't see exactly that there's a way for the government. Right now, all of the government's ideas on doing it are just simply taxing and spending more on bureaucratic solutions. I'm not sure that's exactly going to work. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by a member of the 14.05%, Jerome Keating. Thank you, Gavin. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And uh, have a good evening, Gavin. Now, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT. FM 100.